Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, So I didn't introduce myself before. Let me do that now. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer City. Uh, And so thank you for being with us this morning. We continue in a series on Romans that we've been doing for a number of weeks now, uh, really since the fall of last year. And you'll notice that as we come, we're starting to come to the really fun parts of this letter, and as we come here to chapter 5, you'll, you'll see that this chapter begins with the word, therefore. Everybody there? Are you with me? So we see that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's the great preacher in London, uh, once said, he said, I think sometimes that the whole secret of the Christian life is to know how to use the word, therefore. Lloyd-Jones means that To live successfully as a Christian, you have to think. You have to know doctrine and be able to draw out the implications of that doctrine into in real time, really. To draw it out in real time as you're as you're going about your day in your life. And and we that speaks right to there's there's an anti-intellectualism in the church, and really it's pervasive in in our society. We don't want to think. We don't we don't want to do things that are hard. Uh, We don't think we should have to think. And I would just say to you, you can't be a Christian and not think. Christianity is not a way of life. It is not a moral code. It is a message. It is gospel. And so to be a Christian, you have to receive the message and then work to get your whole life in alignment with the truth of what's being revealed. That's what Paul's doing here when he begins in chapter 5, begin verse 1. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything I've said, right, the English teacher probably told you at some point in your life, when you see a therefore, what do you do? Find out what it's there for. Therefore, everything I've said since we have been justified by faith, in other words, that's what the whole, you know, the last three chapters, or five, four chapters have been about. Therefore, in light of everything I've said, since we are justified by faith, Paul, and then he launches into what, what's going to come next in the, in the text. 
So in other words, if what I've been saying is true, Paul says, then there are implications. There are things that follow from justification by faith, not works. And there are a number of them, actually, in these 11 verses. We're going to just pick one today and go with it. We'll come back. We're going to do this again next week and pick another one, but just one today. And here's the one we're going to deal with today. Since we are justified by faith, not works, verse 1, then we can live with peace. See that? Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I was reading uh, the other day about uh, the fact that Kendall keeps a record of what people highlight in their ebooks. So if you're ever reading an ebook and you see, you come to a part where, you know, 175 people have already highlighted that, that passage. And uh, so Kendall keeps a record of these things. And, um, and of course, the Bible is one, is one of the most widely read and popular books. And so it's obviously also read popularly uh, on Kindles as well. And, and this article was, was chronicling the verses that people have, have underlined the most. Any idea what the most highlighted verse in the Bible on Kindle is? I'll give you a hint. It's not John 3.16. It's not Psalm 23. Believe it or not, it's not even Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ. The most highlighted verse in the Bible on Kindle is Philippians 4.6, which says, Do not be anxious about anything. Now, I don't need to quote you the statistics. We are an anxious people. We are an anxious society. So how do, you, how do you overcome your anxiety? If what the gospel offers is peace, how do you get yourself out of that anxiety that can just grip you into whatever the Bible means by this word peace? Where does it come from? And the first thing I would say to you is that it doesn't come from emptying your mind. It comes from filling your mind with the truth of the gospel. In Christianity, meditation is not a, a decentering and an emptying of your mind. It's actually filling your mind with, with the good news of, of, of grace and then thinking out the implications and applying it to your life. You have to think yourself to peace. Now, that word peace there means to put together. That's what the word literally means. And so to be at peace means to be put together, to be whole. The broken pieces of your life are fitting back together again. And so the text says that the only thing that can put us back together is grace. Look at it again. Verse 1, therefore, since we have peace, excuse me, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we, in, in which we stand and we rejoice. And so the road to peace is a journey from guilt to grace. That word access means literally to make an introduction. So the gospel introduces us to grace. Before, we didn't know grace. We only knew guilt. We only knew condemnation, and we lived our whole lives out of a, this inner sense of just being bent over in guilt and condemnation. But now what's happened in what Jesus has done and what Paul's trying to write about here is we're being introduced to grace. Grace in us, we're no longer strangers. Something entirely new has been opened to us. That's what Paul means. And so we see grace is not a doctrine. It's not a feeling. This is going to become really important in the next few chapters. Grace is a sphere. It's a kingdom. It's a reality. It's a reigning power. It's a home. And you can make yourself in that home. And so you don't just believe grace. We are told in verse 2, you stand in it which means 
part of what you have to do is you have to remember that grace is true even when it doesn't feel like it's true. That the sin underneath every sin is, is, um, is a failure to believe the gospel. So the key to obedience is to remember what Paul has already been talking to us about and what he's going to tell us again here and again in the next chapter and again all the way through. You've got to remember these things and then constantly be thinking out the implications of, what, of, of the doctrine that, that we're being taught. That's what it means to stand in grace. To say, no, this is my home. I'm not going back there. I'm not going back into that legalistic striving under the law, under the wrath of God. I, I've been introduced to grace and there's no going back. And the reason you've got to do that is grace is the only thing that can put you and God back together. And when that happens, when you and God get put back together, then you get put back together too. And then what grace does is once it's put you back together, then it sends you out into the world to put all the broken things in the world back together. And that really is the outline for what we're going to talk about this morning. If you see there, I've provided it for you in your worship folder. We want to see three things. We want to see first uh, that, that Paul is, is declaring uh, that through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. When you know you have peace with God, you actually begin to experience the peace of God. And when you begin to experience the peace of God in your life, that makes you a peacemaker. And that really, those are the three things that we want to look at this morning, okay? So peace with God, the peace of God, and then becoming a peacemaker. Let's just start with the first thing. And it's the first thing because it's the most important thing, and that is peace with God. Peace First is an objective reality. It's something that must happen to you before it can happen in you. So look at, again in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones again. He said, uh, we shall never know the peace of God until we first have peace with God. We shall never know the peace of God until we first have peace with God. So Christianity is theological. It's not therapeutic. The message of the gospel deals with how we can be right with God because that's the main thing. We need to be put back together with God because nothing else is right until that's right. And it's not right. Paul says only through Christ can we have peace with God, which of course assumes that without Christ, there is no peace. And if it's not peace, then what is it? It's war. War. Uh, in modern politics, when a relationship between two countries begins to deteriorate, war is always the last resort. They first break off uh, diplomatic relations, which means they stop communicating, they stop working together, uh, they shut down the embassy in that country, and they bring their people home, and, try to, and they begin to try to work around one another with other countries. Uh, but if things continue to go bad, then eventually there comes a time when they declare war. It's an official state Act, an official act of state. And now they are declared enemies and are in a state of war. And that's important because I think most people who struggle with faith would describe their relationship with God as, a, as something like a breaking off of dipl diplomatic relations. We're not on speaking terms, you know, God and I. Or, or uh, in moments of raw honesty, they would admit that there is maybe deep animosity and resentment. But the Bible says that it's much, much worse than that, that Every single person in the room, every single person in the room, what is true of our most basic nature is that we, that we have uh, declared ourselves at war with God. That there is no peace. Sinful humanity is at war with God. Psalm 2, for example, describes 
the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain to overthrow God's throne and to shake off his authority. So the world, whenever you come across that word in the scriptures, cosmos, is human society organized in rebellion against God. So sin is more than just doing bad things. Sin is a state of rebellion fueled by a deep resentment toward the crown claims of Christ over our lives. It's not just breaking the rules. Sin is this hard attitude of hating the one who makes the rules and being intent on doing whatever I have to do to overthrow his government. Sin is an act of rebellion. It is a declaration of war against heaven. And the first step to faith or towards deeper faith is to be honest about this, that there is, we're told from beginning to end in the Bible, a natural hostility to God's rule in our hearts. We hate his authority. And here's what I would say to you this morning. It doesn't matter whether you feel like you hate God or not. It's not a subjective thing. It's an objective reality. This passage says that we were all at one time, look verse 10, enemies of God. Even if you're a Christian now, there was a time in your life when you were declared, when you were God's declared enemy and therefore liable to his wrath. And what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 2, children of wrath. And you remember this, I hope, from Romans chapter 1, if you were here, Romans 1.18. Remember that? The wrath of God is being revealed against all the unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We don't, you know, we don't hear this in churches anymore. The idea of wrath and hell are offensive to people, to modern people, modern enlightened people. But what I, they are at the very heart of the gospel message. If you lose God's wrath, you lose the gospel. Because the gospel is the message that we have been saved from the wrath of God. I mean, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, doesn't mean that God is not angry at sin. It means he is angry at sin because he loves the world. It doesn't mean no wrath. It means that God in love gave himself in Jesus to save us from himself. So Tim Keller, who a, a, was a pastor in New York City for many, many years, in a sermon on this passage, he defined guilt, which is the opposite of peace, as, and I thought it was rather brilliant. He said, guilt is the feeling uh, that our guilt is more than a feeling. Because the culture, you know, what defines guilt as a psychological problem. It's all a feeling. It's subjective. You just gotta, it's a maladjustment. You just need to, you need to figure out how to not feel so bad about yourself. The Bible says, no, that's not true. Guilt is a sense of moral accountability that my wrongs have created an objective record and I should be paying for that record we live in a moral universe the fabric the fabric of the universe that holds the universe together is according to Christianity moral truth and moral absolutes they're every bit as real as physical realities so guilt is not a feeling but here's the thing and this we gotta you gotta hang with me when I say this because this is well, this is we gotta be really careful here guilt 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 is not a feeling, it's, it's more than a feeling, but God's opposition to our sin isn't a feeling either. There's an objective reality about guilt that creates a problem, not just for us, but also for God, and I say this reverently. Uh, but, but Keller went on to say, he said, our guilt is the only real problem that God ever faced. He, note, he notes verse 6, where it says, for while we were still weak, if you look there, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So, what, what he goes on to say is he says, God is so powerful that he never has to wait for things. You remember the creation account? God said light, and what happened? I mean, light, right? God said see, 
and there was seed and so forth. But God cannot say, let there be forgiveness, and then there's forgiveness. Jesus had to die in the fullness of time. He had to come. Something had to be done to that moral objective record standing against us. God could not just say, okay, you know, I forgive you. He couldn't just wave his, you know, wave his magic wand and it, poof, it's gone. Forgiveness is the only problem the Almighty God ever had. Can you imagine a judge? Uh, and, and somebody who's been convicted of murder comes before the judge. Proven murder. It's been proven in, in all of that. And, and he says, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry. I realize the damage I've caused. And the judge says, well, oh, well, in that case, then you go free. What would happen? There would be revolting in the streets. Because you, you, we wouldn't stand for that. You can't have a society if judges did that sort of thing. And it's the same thing. You can't have a universe if you don't have justice. There is a physical accounting in the universe. If you jump off a balcony five stories high, <laughs> what's going to happen? You're, gonna, you're going down. You're going to smack into the pavement and hurt or probably kill yourself. But there's a, there's a physical accounting. Gravity is real whether you believe it is real or not. But there are moral laws too. And you go against the moral laws and you keep going and it will feel like hitting the concrete, but much, much worse. Even God has to acknowledge and deal with this moral accounting. And, and that brings us to the heart of the gospel. Uh, what we're told in the gospel is that God must punish sin. His wrath must be satisfied, but how? Here's the, the great news that Paul has been bringing to us. Not by pouring out his wrath upon us, but through a substitute. In verse 6, we're told Christ died for the ungodly. He died on behalf of the ungodly, in the place of the ungodly. He took upon himself God's wrath. He fell and hit the pavement at 100 miles an hour, and the result is that he himself is our peace, Paul says in Ephesians 2. There's peace. Because of what Jesus has done, we have peace with God. Hostilities have ended. We've been saved from God's wrath through the cross. And as a result, verse 10, we are reconciled to the Father. The flaming sword of God's justice has been sheathed and we enter into his presence and we can walk and we can talk with him again as we were made to from the very beginning. Objective reality. See, it's true whether you feel it to be true or not. But what happens when you start to feel it? What happens when... What, what we're describing here begins to really become an experiential thing that you, that you have a sense of on your heart. Well, that's the second thing. See, peace is not just an objective reality. It's also a subjective experience. Peace with God leads to the peace of God. The opposite of anxiety and guilt in these things we normally deal with, this inner emotional quiet and rest, even in the midst of difficult times. And so the word peace, you'll notice, isn't used this way directly in the passage, but it's here. Paul goes on to describe the kind of joy and hope that can fill your life so that even when suffering comes, there's this inner emotional quiet and rest and even, and even joy. And then in verse 5, he says, look down there. Uh, he says in verse 5, because, this is, this is because God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, we're going to come back to that verse next week. And so I'm going to be very short here. But let me just say this. The struggle in all Christian ethics is to believe the truth of the gospel and to act on it even when you can't feel it's truth. But what Paul's describing in verse 5 is the opposite of that. It's this uh, overwhelming assurance 
of God's love and generosity and kindness. God's love poured out, he says. God's love filling your heart until you begin to overflow. The objective reality of peace with God becoming real to your heart. He says the work of the Holy Spirit is to cause God's love to become more than just an idea or a theory to you. It's to cause you to actually know and taste and feel God's love for you, so to make it real to your heart so that you sense it, you experience it, you begin, you begin to feel it. That's the peace of God. That's a knowing of peace with God from firsthand experience that's so overwhelming and defining that even when life makes it hard to believe, you have no trouble believing. Does that make sense? Because something's happened inside of you. See, this is what my burden for the church, for our church in general, is, is I, I don't want us to be a place that is filled with people who, who sing high, grand theological truths but have not had those truths become spiritual reality in the heart to where you're singing and you can't sing without weeping. You're singing and you can't sing without there being a lift in your emotional experience because those, it's more than just words. It's something that's, that's like right in here somewhere, right? It just, it's dug down deep inside of you to where you feel it in a way uh, that there are affections and desires and hopes and these things that are starting to just flow, overflow out of you. Christianity is subjective experience. It's experiential, and that's where the power comes from. The peace of God, a deep inner assurance of God's love that acts as a bouncer that throws out anxiety and fear and keeps you in the love of God even when life begins to fall apart. But how do you get this peace? How does this peace come inside then? Now follow closely here, verses 5 and 6. We're told God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, and then verse 6, for while we were still weak. And the four there is like the therefore in verse one. Paul's making an argument. So the four means you get the reality of verse five when the truth of verses six through 11 hit home in your heart. And that's the work of the spirit. I can't get you there. Do you know how frustrating that is? I can't get you there. You can't get you there. God has to come and plant these words in the soil of our hearts. And so I just wrote my notes to pray. Father, we pray that the truth of your love would shine in our hearts, dispelling the darkness of fear and unbelief in this moment right now. That's our prayer because here's the argument. And the argument is this. God doesn't love you because you're not any of the things you feel guilty about. Let me say it again. God doesn't love you because you're not any of the things you feel guilty about. He doesn't love you because those things really aren't true. In other words, the gospel doesn't say, say, stop beating yourself up. You're not so bad. Instead, it says the opposite. Actually, cheer up. You're far worse than you ever thought yourself being. But God loves you at your very worst. That's the point. That's the argument that the gospel makes. Look at his argument. He says, verse 6, you are weak. And Jesus died for you because God loves you in your weakness. And then verse 7 and 8, you're a sinner and Jesus died for you because God loves you in your sin. Verse 10, you are an enemy, and Jesus died for you to reconcile you to God because God loves you in the midst of all of your hatred and indifference and rebellion of him. Verse 6, while we were still weak, 
Verse 8, while we were still sinners. Verse 10, while we were still enemies. What's the point? Grace. Most of us believe that God's love comes after we get it together, after we clean ourselves up, and that simply is not true. God's love becomes demonstrable to you when you realize that he loved you and he loves you still at your very worst. So, the way to peace is not to try to think better of yourself. It's actually the opposite. To the the degree to which you see that you're a sinner, to that degree, God's love will become demonstrable to you. The greater, see, the greater you see the nature of your sin, the more transformed you will be when you see the cross, which means the more galvanized you will become by the love of God. Oh, to have the love of God shed abroad. To be so convinced, so utterly assured, so supremely confident that despite all of the very worst parts of me, that God looks upon me in love and that mercy and goodness follow me all the days of my life. That he is a shepherd who leads me even in the valley of the shadow of death. When I'm down in the middle of that deep, dark valley, it will not matter at all. I will be no less convinced of God's love and kindness and favor and generosity to me. Because his love has been shed abroad in my heart and I'm overflowing with a sense of it. What happens then? What happens when you become a person like that? Well, it's what we, it's what, it's, it's, it's an implication of the text, but it's an application I wanted to make and is that, is that you become a peacemaker. Peace is an objective reality. It's also a subjective experience. But lastly, thirdly, it's a, it's a spiritual discipline. It's something we do. It's something we create. Look down at verse 11, all the way at the end of this pa- chapter, this passage. We rejoice, Paul says, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. So in the Bible, when a person is reconciled to God, they become a minister of reconciliation. So reconciliation excuse me, here in the text, reconciliation means being made right with God and consequently, if I'm made right with God and if you've been made right with God on the basis of grace and the work of Christ alone, if I've been made right with God and you've been made right with God, then, then it's like the third, it's like a triangle, right? It's like the third line of a triangle. Then I'm right with God and you're right with God. Then we're right with one another. No matter how we treat one another, no matter, because I wasn't made right with God based upon anything I did, and neither were you, and so we're not right based upon what we do. We're right because we become people who extend peace and and love and mercy and grace to one another. So Christians are people, then, that bring peace wherever they go. They they bring peace to relationships. They bring peace to people who are struggling internally with, with doubts and fears. So one of my favorite stories in the Bible is uh, the story of when Jesus calms the sea. Because I have to go back to it over and I'm one of those people, I probably have Philippians 4, 6 underlined in my Kindle. Highlighted, underlined, all of that. And you remember the story, Jesus and his disciples went out onto the Sea of Galilee to get away from the crowds. And a storm came up. The storm came up. And the disciples uh, got full of fear. So the storm that they were in created anxiety inside of them. They got, they got really afraid. Now, my favorite part of the, of the story is, uh, where's Jesus in the midst of all of this? He's asleep. And so they wake him up and, uh, and accuse him of not really caring about what's going on. And then what he does is he, he wakes up, and then with a word, he calms the winds and the seas. He spoke peace 
the word peace. And there was peace. Now, there's a contrast there. The disciples encountered a storm. They, they found themselves in the midst of a storm, and, and, and they got, their hearts got stormy inside. They became afraid. It says they woke Jesus up, and they said, don't you care that we're about to die? The storm created anxiety and doubt, and they became frantic. They catastrophized the situation. Anybody ever do that? Just me? Good. All right. I do that. In my frantic eye, I can catastrophize things. And then there was Jesus in the middle of the storm. He's asleep. Perfect peace. You keep him in perfect peace. His mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you, right? Psalm 26. Perfect peace, even with the winds and the rain. And when the men wake him up, he spoke out of that internal peace. He spoke out of that deep, residing peace in his life, and he created peace. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the great 19th century preacher in London, said, Only he that hath peace can make peace. And so here's my question, and it's, I've said this to you a few times. I want to keep coming back to you because it's my favorite thing. My favorite thing my wife has ever said in her parenting of our children over the years, but when they were really little, she doesn't do it so much anymore, but this, this was like the, it was on when this came, when mom are you being a peacemaker or are you being a troublemaker? Right? We have four kids, so we got to deal with that, right? All the time, sometimes it feels like. Are you being a troublemaker or are you being a peacemaker? Because a troublemaker is a person who internally is full of anxiety and fear. They don't have the love of God shed abroad in their hearts. or It's not an overflowing stream. It's a little trickle. And so every storm, every little storm causes them to question whether God really cares. And so they're prone, like me to catastrophize and make mountains out of molehills. And they're ramped up, and so everywhere they go, uh, they ramp other people's fears and worries up too. Have you ever experienced anybody like that? So maybe I'm not the best person to come to when you're ramped up. Ramp up people. The storm inside of them creates a storm. Creates a storm in other people. And then there's the peacemaker, and the peacemaker is the person who has the peace of Christ. Ruling in their hearts, so even when the storm hits, it doesn't come inside. See, they're able to keep their calm. And not only that, but they're able to create calm. The troublemaker takes away other people's courage. It, it like, grabs people and brings other people into their fear. The peacemaker, like Jesus, is able to keep their calm and speak words of peace that actually create peace. So in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says that those that God reconciles to himself, that he gives them also the ministry of reconciliation. That's your assurance of pardon passage we read. And what does that mean? It means that being reconciled to God, we have his love, being reconciled to him and having his love overwhelming your heart gives you a unique and powerful set of resources to bring peace in a number of different ways. And let me just mention them as applications as we close. First, in relationships. It really can make you a powerful force in your relationships and even even in the hearts and the lives of others because the things that normally cause relationships to, to, to deteriorate impatience and self-righteousness and judgmentalism judgmental spirit and so forth grace strips all of those things away so you're able to be more patient than normal uh, you're able to be more forgiving less critical you can bear with other people's sins uh, better and so the result will be peace in your relationships you will really find that, that your relationships are whole and that 
there's a general sense of peace and, and love there. But even beyond that, the ministry of reconciliation means that everywhere you go, you're de-escalating conflict. Do you believe that how, how well would our society be served by an army of people armed with the gospel to go out onto social media into the, the social square to de-escalate? That's what we should be. To de-escalate conflict. You're helping put relationships back together by encouraging understanding and forgiveness. So if you have a friend who's critical of another friend or a friend in a bad marriage, you can, you can join in or you can, you can heap on your own criticism or you can, perpet, you can perpetuate the conflict or you can work towards reconciliation. In Ephesians 4.12, Paul says that the consequence of the gospel is that he has, one of my favorite verses, uh, in the Bible, he has broken down the dividing walls of hostility that separate us from one another, which means that a gospel person will go about tearing down walls of separation, not building them. We should be working to dismantle the dividing wall of racism in our city. That's our job. To be a force of bringing people from different religious and political ideologies and backgrounds together for the sake of bringing God's shalom to this place. That's the ministry of reconciliation. So it's a powerful, powerful work you can do in relationships. Secondly, I think it can make you a powerful counselor and friend. Being reconciled to God and having his love overwhelming your heart gives you unique and powerful resources to bring peace to other hearts. To be a place where people who are find themselves in the midst of the storm can go to find shelter and, and rest. Spurgeon, in the sermon I quoted, he goes on to say, listen to these words, really great. Our calm shall work marvels in the little ships whereof others are captains. We too shall say, peace be still. Our confidence shall prove contagious and the timid shall grow brave. Our tender love shall spread itself and the contentious shall cool down to patience. Don't you want to be that kind of person? Don't you want that kind of friend? Who, when you're raging... Right, if you went on the mission trip to Nicaragua this summer, tranquilo, tranquilo. For my Spanish friends in the back. Don't you want friends that could look at you and say, tranquilo, tranquilo. Calm down. Let's talk. But then lastly, uh, so in relationships and in counseling and friendship, but also I think uh, that, this, that this peace that we've been talking about can make you a force in evangelism too. Being reconciled to God and having his love overwhelming your heart gives you unique and powerful resources to implore others to be reconciled to God. Ultimately, the ministry of reconciliation means you become an evangelist. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you be reconciled to God. God has entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ making he, he is making his appeal through us, he goes on to say there in that text. And so let me, just, let me just say this as I close. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me implore you. Be reconciled to God. Turn away from your sin and your stubborn insistence that you be in control of your life. Turn to Christ who loved you and loves you still at your very worst and died for you while you were still his enemy. Augustine famously said, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. If you're here and your faith is not in Jesus, let me just say to you, you won't ever find peace until you make peace with God. Listening, listen. 
God is offering you terms of peace in the death of his son, the Lord Jesus. And if you refuse and continue to live as a rebel, then you will meet him in judgment. But you will meet him there as an enemy to be conquered. There is, we're told, verse 9, wrath that is coming. The passage warns of that. Here's what today is all about. He has sent me ahead of that day. He has sent me in this moment, and he's sending you as you go from this place ahead of him as an ambassador of his to offer terms of peace. And so I would say to you, will you lay down your sword? I implore you. Kids, I implore you. Talk to your parents. Tell them, I, I, I need to become a Christian. Flee from the wrath that is to come. Be reconciled to God. But, but also, don't think if you're a Christian, you're off the hook. Let me say to you, if you're a Christian, let me just ask this question. Do you feel an urgency for the people you love who are not yet believers? God intends to make his appeal to them through you. And that takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of wisdom, especially today. Evangelism is scary more so right now than ever before, you have to be compelled by Christ's love. And that is what I'm praying. That's what I'm praying for us as we enter into this next season as a church, that God would shed his love abroad in our hearts, that it would overflow in our lives for the sake of others. We have been given the message of peace with God. So we're called to go in the peace of God, making peace. So let's pray that you would work in us to do just that, can we? Let's pray. Father, we do ask that in these last moments we have to be together as we sing, that you would help our hearts to be stayed on you. Uh, that is the key. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind and heart is stayed on you for he trusts in you. And so we confess to you that we still in many ways don't trust your love. Uh, it, is, it is a theory that we hold to, but not something that we have tasted and seen to the degree that we would like to. And so we do pray through my feeble attempts this morning that your love will come home to our hearts. And the result will be that there will be a song rattling around in there that as these guys behind me sing in just a minute, that they would put voice to the things we're feeling. And that would, what would come would be an, an eruption of joy and thanksgiving and reverence to you. That we, would, that we would be full to overflowing with your love and favor and kindness and generosity to us and that the result would be uh, that we would have no choice but to see a gushing forth of your praise and thanksgiving uh, in song to you now, but then as we go in a message of gospel reconciliation to the people that we love in this city that so desperately 80% of the city that we live in who, who don't know the good news of the gospel. Would you send us out in the power of your spirit today, full of love and grace, with the message of, of the gospel on our lips, that you might bear much fruit in us and glorify your name. Um, help us sing now until we go from this place singing and declaring among the nations uh, your great name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So compelled by the love of God for you, compelled by love for him, uh, he sends us now into the world. Uh, bearing uh, the message of reconciliation on our lips. And so, in the power of the Spirit, uh, go, for he promises to go with you uh, and be with you always to the end of the age. Uh, but he ensures uh, your success in his authority and presence. And so, receive and rest upon his words uh, with which he sends us. Amen. These words of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his what? His peace, both now and now. 
and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.